Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Marin Geda. And each week, we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. This week, we're looking at the issue of immigration, which politicians all around the West know is a big, important issue, salient issue, as pollsters put it. But they're not really sure always exactly what people want, what people are concerned about, what drives their concerns about immigration. And of course, there is one man at the very least who seems to think he knows what voters want. And that is, of course, Donald Trump, who's got a very hardline stance on immigration. And when you hear people at Trump rallies, one of the things they do praise him for is is his position on immigration, that any undocumented migrants will be sent home immediately, that he'll build this big wall. So it seems perhaps that he at least is addressing some voters' concerns. Well, he thinks he knows what voters want. But at the same time, there isn't even consensus in Trump's own camp what voters want. Some people are telling Trump to moderate. Others are saying to keep doing what he's doing. Um, and that kind of debate you see in politicians all around the world. People are looking. They know that people are concerned. They're not quite sure what they're concerned about. They don't know how to speak to them. And of course, it's it's a question that's particularly pertinent here in the UK because our own Prime Minister, Theresa May, is trying to work out what stance we need to take on immigration now that we're in the process of leaving the EU. Yeah, she's kind of trying to figure out exactly how little change to that she can get away with, which is something I think we'll come on to later, but maybe it's time for enough of us. Um, let's bring in uh, our guests. We've got here to discuss this, Sunda Katwala, the director of British Future, a think tank focused on the issue of immigration, and Alicia Barrett, the American Outreach Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs, a free market research organisation. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much for coming. I think we'll kick off looking at Trump. We've actually got a clip to play of him laying out his uniquely hard line sort of stance on on this issue. On day one, we will begin working on an impenetrable, physical, tall, powerful, beautiful southern border wall. Trump thinks he knows the answer to the concerns of the American public about immigration. Pull up the borders, pull up the drawbridge, keep people out. Not everyone in his camp is sure. Uh, Is he right? What what do we think? Uh, He's not, I think, where the American public as a whole is. He's actually a fairly extreme example of a quite familiar populist paradox that the immigration argument that will fill rallies and get the people who are most angry about immigration saying, at last, somebody speaks for me. And in this case, you know, to surprise of some people, has won him the primaries. You go to a general election and you're going to need, you know, more like 75 million votes to win. And it's now the wrong position. And how you pivot there and pivot back and keep the crowd with you is, I think, the strategic debate within the Trump camp. Some people love what he's hearing, but you're, I think, quite unlikely to win over a majority of the American population on that ticket. Yes, Sanders is right. I think only about 61% of Americans have said they are opposed to building a wall. It is a small minority of the country. But Josh, you made such a good point, which speaks to Trump's 
kind of success or why he's thriving on this issue is that a lot of Americans feel uh, that Washington hasn't been speaking to them. You know, you pose that politicians are struggling to address the immigration concerns that the citizens are having. And Trump has has somehow done this, and he's speaking, as we just heard in this clip, in very basic language, short on substance, but it's addressing the fears that a lot of people have, and Washington, D.C. has not done that as of late. So people are enjoying that and supporting it. We'll see how he manages to build a $15 billion uh, wall. But he's talking in, you know, you say basic language there, not necessarily in the clip we just heard, but some people would say a lot of his language is more than basic. It's it's racist, you know. Is he is he not going really, really far with something that, as you say, many politicians maybe aren't going far enough on? I would not want to link anti-immigrant attitudes to someone being racist. Um, you have to get to the root cause of why they're feeling that. Some may feel that jobs are lost. Some may feel that it's a drain on public services. Those are two very good points to be examined. Some may feel that their culture is under threat. Uh, when you start getting into that space and it's just about someone being different than you are, then I think you can have a conversation about that. But Trump's policy, and I, I do hear what you're saying, but Trump's policy does seem to have race at the heart of it, because the language that he's used when he's talked about immigrants has been so incendiary. And, you know, I think he described Mexicans as, as rapists and criminals. It does seem like just with his immigration policy, at the very least, it is rooted in this fear of the other and this idea that immigrants are different and un-American and unwanted. I, I think it's right to say that he has crossed the line on the way he talked about Mexicans as rapists. Actually, also his, you know, his policy and the, the, the ban, the moratorium on people who are Muslim coming to the United States. I think he's crossed the line on prejudice and therefore it's an appeal to the minority voters who are prejudiced. It will also have an appeal to other voters who just feel left behind, left out, so frustrated mm-hmm. that nobody speaks to them. So I think it's important to recognise there's racism and prejudice in the immigration debate and we want to keep that out of it but to also note that most concern about immigration isn't racist or prejudice and if we make the mistake of thinking that it is we over-police the discourse the mainstream doesn't engage with the anxieties that people with mainstream and moderate views feel and then people think they need to go quite far to the populist end of politics to get the debate to happen even if they don't think the populist politician has actually got solutions they actually think that voice is at least getting people to wake up and have a debate so you'd be in the bit of the trump camp would you cinder that would be saying you need to kind of pull back a little bit here if you want to appeal to a majority of the country. I don't know if you can do that, actually, because I think, you know, authenticity is so important in politics. And I think if you do too much swerving on the electoral campaign, to some extent, I think he's made his bed. I think some of the outreach to Hispanic voters and black voters isn't actually for those minority voters, which I think, you know, you can't win without getting some of them. But it's, it's also to show to some of the left behind white vote that you're not outright offensive or racist you're trying a bit and it isn't working so I think for the Republican Party to win the White House you know it's got to realize that you you know winning a majority of white votes is something they've done in quite a lot of presidential elections Mitt Romney did it and they need a more multi-ethnic coalition I think it's a little bit late for Donald Trump to be the party of a rainbow coalition yes I agree I think his outreach as of late could be classified as disingenuous but uh, is a little too late at this point but what's confusing me and perhaps Alicia you can answer this as our as our resident American is why people think that Trump's immigration policy can ever actually happen. Because the wall is 
I think it's fair to say it's impossible. I mean, Mexico is not going to pay to build a massive wall, is it? And I don't think you can ban all Muslims from entering the country. And it does strike me as a a Brit that I'm just surprised that people are buying into it. I hear a lot of Americans saying, I know that is impossible. It will take 20 years and billions to, to deport 11 million undocumented immigrants. And similarly with the other points you made. But they almost feel that he is speaking at the issue. And OK, maybe he won't achieve that. But at least we're pushing that paradigm to the right. And, and we'll get something a little more centered than that. But at least we're going that far out. And, and I think they they understand that a wall will be challenging, deportation will be challenging, if not impossible. Uh, but they're just happy someone's saying it because they this has been built up in a lot of middle America. Jobs are being outsourced, right? And you're right, Sandra, they feel left behind. And and this is them clinging on to, to some rationale as to why they're not getting on as well as they thought they would. It's a similar thing then to what we saw before our EU referendum here, that some of the rhetoric, I think, coming from, say, parties like UKIP, the UK Independence Party, it did reach out to the people who felt left behind. But for the first time, it felt that immigration really did come to the fore. And it was something that was able to be discussed about very openly in, in the public space. It was interesting to hear the debate within the Brexit campaigns, the two different Brexit campaigns, um, with which I imagine Sunder was very familiar, the the way that UKIP um, and Farage thought that immigration was going to be the key driver of this issue. I mean, I interviewed Farage, and he told me that he'd known for years and years and years that if he could make a link in the public's mind between controlling immigration and leaving the EU, he could get the public to leave the EU. He thought that was at the heart of it. At the same time, the mainstream campaign, Vote Leave, thought that it was more about sovereignty and about control of our borders. And so it's, it's quite an interesting question to know which of them drove it. I mean, I think we've got a clip of Farage uh, talking about this, actually. When Theresa May says that it is difficult to control immigration as a member of the European Union, she's wrong. It isn't difficult. It's impossible. It's an important question to ask because this is a a major upset for the kind of political establishment in recent years. A lot of people think it was driven largely by immigration. Was it? You know, what do people think? There's an irony about that debate between the Leave campaigns because the official vote Leave campaign always thought that if we run this referendum as UKIP, then we'll lose. They won 17 million votes in the end. You know, UKIP were good for 4 million of them. They had to get a lot of non-UKIP voters. And yet they did move further towards Farage's argument in stressing immigration than they had expected to. Immigration was very important to the reason we had the referendum. It was very important to the result. It wasn't enough for them to win on, actually. You know, another quarter of the Leave vote actually would keep free movement and have the single market, etc. There were moderate Leave votes as well who they wouldn't have won without. But the reason it was important is that there's something correct in what Nigel Farage is saying. Certainly if Theresa May and David Cameron wanted their policy, which is that they would have controlled net migration to under 100,000, everybody knew that the government's headline policy was incompatible with staying in the European Union. So it was a mistake to have kept that policy. When that was put to Remain campaigners in the referendum, their strategy was to quickly talk about something else and say, look, you need to keep market access, don't you? And that refusal to have a debate about how to handle high immigration, which would be a consequence of staying in, by always changing the subject, that sends really worrying signals to the public, which is if we stay in, we'll have to get a grip of this. Um, And yet you won't even answer questions. So it was a vote of no confidence in how our governments have handled immigration in the last 10 or 15 years. But we can make a quite clear distinction, in my view, 
between that and a majority vote that is anti-migrant or xenophobic, because a lot of those Leave voters and a lot of Remain voters as well, reluctantly voting for free movement, they'd like less unskilled immigration, but they'd like to keep quite a bit of it as well. They want to keep skilled immigration or increase it. They think student immigration is good. So there's a anti-migrant xenophobic core vote but actually they won in the pragmatic centre actually because the Remain campaign didn't have any answer at all. It is an important distinction to make that amongst those who ranked immigration as the most important issue in this referendum uh, you're right not all were saying close the borders you know we need to severely restrict those coming into this country. Many actually ranked immigration as a high issue because they thought it was very unfair to the rest of the world that Europeans got preferential treatment uh, when coming to the UK. There's more than one side to this, and immigration, along with sovereignty, were very important. And the other thing to, to notice is that the migration paradox held true in, in, the, in Brexit, that those that are surrounded by immigrants that work alongside them, that employ them, that go to school with them, they voted to remain and are largely pro-immigrant and want uh, migrants coming to, to Britain to add value and culture to this country. And a lot of those that voted uh, to leave and, and ranked immigration as such a big priority were actually from rural areas that saw fewer immigrants coming and they're less affected by it. Uh, yet still, that was the biggest issue for them. But we saw, you know, there is, a, there is a lot of nuance to this and to different people's concerns about it. But at the same time, You've seen since the referendum with this kind of huge spike in, in hate crime against both xenophobic and racist that some people did feel that the arguments being made by mainstream leave politicians somehow legitimized certain anti-immigrant views. I mean, what, how did that kind of come across? Well, we should, we should be really worried about that, you know, but about... Yeah. Uh, tenth of people, you know, it's a small minority in political terms, it's a big number of people in sociological terms, you know, overtly express support for racist views, you know, black and Asian people aren't as uh, uh, British as other people, or, you know, migrants can never be fully British, three quarters, 80% of people don't. But some of those people then thought, well, that's what this was about, hooray, I'm back. And then there's a responsibility on both sides of the referendum campaign to say, you've got to get back in your box. It's unfortunate if that challenge to prejudice is actually only coming from the Remain side and then they seem to be saying well this is the fault of anybody who thought we should have had this referendum because having a democratic debate about the European Union and then having that debate about is this about xenophobia I mean a very interesting finding from our research in polling done just after the referendum we asked people you know the EU nationals are here is it right that they get to stay and it's not a 52-48 question it's 84% of people are saying yeah that's right we support that and it's three quarters of leave voters so again I'd be worried that you know you've still got 16% of people who won't have that corporate principle, that's a very clear sign that there are foundational issues that if people have come to make their lives here, they're very welcome in Britain and that, you know, three quarters of Leave voters and 90% of Remain voters share that ground. And that's how I think we take the hate crime back out of the equation. There is some kind of distinction to be drawn here, though, because there's there's EU migrants who, as Sunders rightly pointed out, most people here think should be allowed to stay if they're already here. And a lot of the concerns that people voice about them, I think I'm right in saying, is more to do with they worry about wages being driven down, um, about jobs being taken, and less to do with kind of cultural problems. And then there are other migrants who are, to put it bluntly, you know, non-white um, ethnic minority. And sometimes th there are different concerns that people have about them. I mean, would that be fair? You know, the, the slightly more cultural side of this comes out much more when people talk about Muslim immigration, for example. 
I think the debates we have about integration in this country are often about settled ethnic minority communities here, been here two or three generations, and we're talking about people who are British-born who aren't migrants at all, and there might then be issues about migration from those communities. I mean, the level of non-EU immigration was net 180,000, and the level of EU immigration net 180,000, that was incompatible with free movement. We could have got that number down. We didn't get it down because actually the public wouldn't choose to cut the non-EU immigration we've currently got because a lot of it is students, a lot of it is skilled. It's actually quite tight. There's some family migration there as well. And so one of the interesting debates here, I think the problematic bit of immigration for the public is the pace and scale of low-skilled immigration from the European Union after enlargement. They couldn't say will have quite a bit, but there's also a limit. But they're not, I think, discontent with the level. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. ...of non-EU immigration that they've got. So people have got a contradiction between, I wish the number was lower, but I wouldn't cut out the immigration that's good for the economy. Absolutely. But there is a point that's worth remembering that during the EU referendum, people were seeing these huge numbers of migrants coming in from war-torn countries, you know, from Syria, from North Africa. And while they weren't entering the UK, mainly because it's so difficult to reach the UK, that was a concern that was in the back of a lot of people's minds, I think. When they voted to leave the EU, some of them were thinking, well, if we leave the EU, we're at less risk of having to take in some of those migrants or indeed having some of those migrants reach our country. So while they might be okay with the level of migrants we accept from other countries, is it not fair to say they were worried about, as I say, these these people fleeing war? That's quite a polarising issue as well. Actually, seven out of 10 people in this country think we should protect refugees who need protection, then debate about whether we're doing enough or should do more. Polarises people. So what you actually saw um, a year ago with the death of Ali and Kurdi is you actually saw an upsurge of the liberal poll of the debate, suddenly getting very anxious about the need to do more and pressure on the government. And the government made a commitment to take 20,000 refugees. And at the same time, you know, the strongest bit of the leave vote would have been saying, oh, I don't know why we haven't cut that out entirely. So actually, views of that issue polarise quite similarly to views of the Europe issue and views of the free movement issue. The refugee one in particular is is so tough. And I'm actually surprised to hear that seven out of 10 uh, support the UK welcoming those fleeing these war-torn countries, because from the noise that's created, you would think that's a much smaller percentage. I think that that seven out of 10, they need to do a better job articulating and, and putting their voice out there to, to say these people are risking their lives to travel a very long way to create a better life for their family. They're hardworking and they want to become a part of the United Kingdom. And it is, it, it's so 
hard to hear, and this is in America as well, just this condescending view or when it's all about luck of where you're born. And I, I would just think that in the UK and the US, we need to do a better job of, of having empathy for those that want a better life and are risking so much to get to it. And that is a core value of the United States of America. And so for Donald Trump to say, well, these immigrants don't hold the same values of, as, as we do. And then we talked about integration here in the UK. There are so many similar attributes that they possess, and they're so desperate to be here. So we, we definitely need to vocalize and support the welcoming of refugees. And to take it back to um, to immigration and to look at a slightly different um, issue on that, um, we haven't really talked too much about the economic benefits, really, that immigration can have. I mean, I think it's been amply demonstrated, hasn't it, that immigrants give more to the UK economy than they take from it. And I feel like, again, that was something that perhaps was missing from the Brexit debate, that it would have helped if the Remain camp had really stressed migrants and immigration is a very beneficial thing. I'm rather sceptical about that as an effective way to make the argument. I think one of the things we saw in the EU referendum is that when uh, business voices in particular are saying, well, this is good for the economy, it is good for business, and that is coming from an affluent graduate well off group. A lot of people are saying, well, I'm glad to hear the economy is going so well for you, but the economy that's working well for you isn't working well for me. So there's a problem with that argument. There's a net contribution to GDP because people have other issues about how we're handling the pressures. And it's also coming across to people as you're saying, look, you think it's bad. Actually, it's good. Read some studies, look at the graph, and I hope you agree with me. And then people think, well, I've just had a lecture from someone who doesn't live in the same world as me. And the winning argument for immigration, actually, is to say when you've got high immigration in a country like Britain, it brings some pressures to our society and it brings some gains to our economy and society too. We've got to be really active at managing the pressures so that we can keep the gains. What about doing that? And a lot of these quite anxious, frustrated voters who think government haven't got grip are saying, well, now you're talking. Of course, if we can manage the pressures, I don't want them to cut out the bit that's good, but I'm not sure we've been doing that. So the irony of this very polarised debate is there's quite a big pragmatic centre ground on immigration. But neither the liberal side of the debate nor the sceptical side of the debate kind of wants to go there. They want to have an immigration good, immigration bad fight about, you know, who's got the right moral position. Mm-hmm. When you when you put it in economic terms, people tend to switch off, right? And, and we can sit here all day and say, yes, they're a net benefit uh, to the economy. They add great value. Uh, they bring new skills, new ideas. They increase productivity, all of these things. But to, the, to your friend down the street, he He's thinking about, well, what about my job? I'm, I'm worried about that. Or I go to my NHS and the line is now much longer than I remember it being five years ago. And we have to meet them where they're at and communicate in that way. And, and that's a role for the government. Uh, rather than uh, trying to set arbitrary targets, they can instead okay, how are people, uh, you know, affected by this? Can we provide them training and skills and education when their low-skilled job, if it is outsourced or taken by someone else, can we help them find another job and uh, get them suited for this technological revolution that is among us? That's a role for government, uh, and that's when they should 
speak about more. But is the issue here not, you know, it, we talk, we tend to talk about this because, and, and fair enough, this is how it's been in the past. You've tended to have people who make the kind of cultural arguments have made them in a very effective, exciting, passionate way. Whereas, you know, the epitome of which on the anti-immigrant side would be Nigel Farage, who said that he doesn't mind a GDP cut of, of whatever it was, 0.5%, if it would mean a more stable and cohesive society. And on the other hand, you've had people who've made the economic arguments in a very dry way. But there must be a way to take the economy as a big part of why fundamentally we need immigration. Uh, you know, when people ask at a very basic level, why do we need all these people to come here? Undoubtedly, there's like enormous cultural enrichment and stuff that's happened to this country as a result of immigration, of course. But at the same time, the fundamental answer to that question is often because it creates jobs, it creates wealth, it keeps our businesses working, it keeps us open to the world, it means that we learn of new business opportunities and adapt to them. So surely there must be emotional ways of making those economic arguments, which has got to be crucial to solving this. Only if you mix the economic argument with the cultural argument. So I'm very sceptical of polarising, do you want to be open or do you want to be closed? Because the sort of open coalition and the closed coalition are both minority coalitions. If you believe in the values of open, either as cultural liberal values or for the economy, you've got to broaden the coalition for open by showing that the benefits of open are distributed more equally, you know, that London does well, but so do the other cities, so do the more rural areas of the country. But also primarily, I think when liberals say, well, let's debate it as economic benefits, that's not really why they support immigration. They support immigration because of the cultural value. And the most profound question that large-scale immigration asks of a society is, how do people become us? And if you're Britain, uh, and if you're the United States of America, we've got mixed records on this. But also, we are countries that know that people can become us, that when people come to our country, they get involved in it, they become citizens, their kids grow up and are just as British as everyone else. And we've seen that work and work well. So if we say, look, immigration works well when we work hard together, integration, we've actually got a powerful cultural argument that spans the divide a bit. One of the reasons it's more difficult now is there's a lot more temporary immigration than there was when people classically used to come with their suitcase at Ellis Island and that was them and their kids and their grandkids. It's actually, uh, the churn is actually slightly harder to work out what we think when people come for a year, come for two years and so on. And that was another distinction, I think, between European free movement mm -hmm. and the integration immigration that historically we think has been part of what's made us British. I think on the cultural side, it's also important to make the point that neither the UK nor the United States were, were closed off. Both are so much richer because of their history of welcoming immigrants to their country. London is arguably the financial capital of the world, and, and it's in that position because of its diverse makeup, very talented group of individuals living here that have come from all over the world. And similarly in the United States, it is a melting pot. And to ignore that history in either country seems ill-informed and it really needs to, to to ride on that. It seems like, given that we've been talking about all these different interests that we need to balance and all these different arguments we need to make, I mean, what, what's a good immigration system look like for a kind of Western democracy? It's quite a big question. It's pertinent in this country at the moment, particularly as we mentioned in the introduction a bit, because Theresa May is thinking about what to go to the EU with on EU negotiations. She's trying to think about what kind of offer she wants to make to the public and to the EU in terms of new controls on immigration and what they would accept. But it's a question for countries all around the world, as we've said, with the, Trump, even if Trump loses the election, for example, there are clearly concerns he's tapped into. He doesn't maybe have the right way to address them, but someone needs to. So what what, what do we think maybe need to be the priorities anyway for, for societies managing it's a big, immigration? There's a big 
trilemma here in immigration. It's got to be fair to the migrants, uh, but also fair to the communities come to. It's got to be workable for your economy and your society. And so unworkable promises just lose you trust. And then it's got to secure the confidence of the public. And that just feels very difficult. But I think we need uh, politicians with more confidence that actually it's not about, well, if it's good for the economy, I'll have to tell the public they've got to put up with it. Or if I do what the public want, I'll have to wreck the economy. Actually, the public made a big choice in this referendum. And, you know, wasn't the one that David Cameron's government wanted. That can't be the last moment of public engagement. Actually, if you trust the median voter much more, you're not just listening to the shouting match at the, at the rallies or on the internet. If you trust the median voter, how do we get the balance right? Because we need skills for our NHS uh, or for our economy, but there are pressures too. Actually, the public would make quite sensible choices, in my view. I think it's an opportunity for the government to devolve power. How do those in Westminster know exactly the skills that are needed in Birmingham? or Liverpool or in East London, especially with how rapidly the industries are changing now. Some countries have done very specific kind of province or county or, or city immigration systems, which really allow both the people in that city or province or county to have the greatest say uh, through their elected officials, and also for those businesses in that particular area to have a say as to what skilled workers they'd like to bring in. Um, Canada has done this in the past with certain provinces, allowing some immigrants in from certain areas of the world, and, uh, you know, you would get a specific you know, national insurance number equivalent that would indicate you have the right to live and work there. I think that's something for the UK to explore. And I mean, Sadiq Khan has taken the lead on this and declaring London is open. And I think he does have an opportunity uh, to possibly try and champion a, a London type visa and devolve power. People in government cannot stay in front of what exactly what skills are needed and when. But I mean, even when we start talking about what skills are needed, there's a good argument um, to say that any system that prejudges skills is never going to be complete. If you take the example of immigration here in the 50s and 60s, no system you could possibly have devised would have identified a innate demand for Indian restaurants. And yet they came and people went to them and it's been a big enriching business for this country. So you can't really judge what skills are needed in advance, can you? I think you can't micromanage the economy, but you'll, you'll only secure consent for managed migration when people feel that there's an effective system that they can trust. What governments have done, feeling there's a lot of political pressure, immediate pressure, is they've done a lot of hyperactive tinkering. So they're always changing the rules in this area or that area and saying we're getting a grip, we're cracking down and so on. And it's not particularly convincing because if you're missing your headline target, you'll then lose trust. What we've never done is have a comprehensive immigration review where we look at it all at once in the way you know you wouldn't try and balance the budget deficit by just lopping off bits of spending here and there we have we do that when we do national defense and uh, strategy but that can't just be business talks to government and stakeholders talk to government it has to engage the public and in particular areas if you're the areas where there's large-scale low-skilled immigration in agriculture we've got to engage people there what makes it work fairly for the people who've come here to contribute to our society and economy and for the people who are already here actually the public have quite a strong sense about how to strike those balances, the people who want to pull up the drawbridge and shut the border and the people who say, well, let's just have all of it because let it rip because it's always good in the end are out of touch, I think, with where most people are, which is that managed migration is good for Britain when we manage it well. Can I sound a note of scepticism, though? Because while those people who say pull up the drawbridge are a minority, they are still a sizable chunk of people. And I think when you say to those people, 
actually, we would like to have X number of migrants coming in and you start talking about the levels of migration that you would accept. Because it is such an emotive issue, they immediately shut down and they say, no, we're not having it. And this is the problem. You know, we've talked about the fact that when you talk about the benefits of migration, it becomes dull, it becomes very economic, very cut and dried, and that turns people off. So I would be interested in hearing, can governments ever persuade these people who in their heart believe immigration is wrong, that it is a good thing. It just seems like it's kind of a battle between the emotional no and then the very dry sort of, yes, it's good for you. I think they have to witness and see the change and see the positive change that that immigration brings. Unfortunately, no, I don't think you can convince them all. Uh, I think you know, that's democracy. People are going to have their different views and some, you know, will get their way and others won't. But to allow the immigration process to create the positive change in communities, I think is one way that they can see it for themselves if they're not going to listen to rational arguments about it. In the United States, you're right, Sundar, we've been tinkering around with immigration. It's actually been politically advantageous for politicians really not to do anything because it's the carrot that they keep holding in front of the voters. Say, we have to do immigration reform. And we've been saying this for over two decades and we haven't done it. So that's, again, why why Donald Trump is refreshing. But yes, I, I think you have to just move ahead with the majority of the people that you can and, and create positive change in the communities. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank our guests, Alicia Barrett and Sundar Katwala, for speaking to us. Thank you all so much for listening. Just a reminder that you can catch us every Thursday on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you can't wait that long, pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe or visit us at newsweek.com. To play us out, here's a clip from US President Barack Obama reminding us that the America that we know was itself founded by immigrants. How quickly we forget... One generation passes, two generations passes, and suddenly we don't remember where we came from. We can never say it often or loudly enough. Immigrants and refugees revitalize and renew America. 